God has called us out, and now he calls us to lean on and depend on him. Would you join me now in prayer? Lord God, you are God and we are not. But you have not remained far from us, but have come down to us. And you have spoken to us and given us the ability to know you and your ways. Through your word, we can have life. And it is in your word that life continues to take place. You have not left us to ourselves, but continue to reveal yourself to us through your word. In your goodness to us, we need not guess how we should approach you or how we should come to you or how we should even pray to you. For you have instructed us, and Lord, you are equipping us to love and to serve you. The truth that we have in your word continually calls us to faithfulness, to repentance, and to trust in the work of your spirit. Lord, we confess that too often we do not hunger and thirst for your word enough. We confess the coldness of our hearts that we attempt to warm ourselves through any means necessary before we long for you. Forgive us for trying to pursue you in our own strength. Instead of abiding in you, we forget that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. That in you, we not only are righteous, but are also being made righteous. Lord, may we continually rest in the knowledge that you are at work in us and press into the work that you are already doing. May we not strike out on our own thinking and that we can do better, that we can work faster and more efficiently than you in our own lives. Because of your work, Lord, we thank you. We are grateful for this gift that you have given us, the gift of your word. We do not need to guess at what pleases you. We do not need to blindly serve you hoping that our best efforts make you happy. But through your word that is alive in us, we can know clearly how we ought to obey you. We also thank you, Lord, that we are not alone in this world. We thank you for other gospel-preaching churches in the Willamette Valley. This morning, we thank you for Hinson Baptist Church in Portland. We thank you for their desire and model of raising up pastors to serve the Pacific Northwest. Lord, we pray for the, that, that, that you would give the elders wisdom to lead this, that church in this coming season. We pray that the members of that church would love and trust their elders. And finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. This morning, we lift up those in our church who work in the healthcare system. Father, we thank you for them. We thank you for their desire to serve you by serving and loving those you have created. Lord, we pray that they would not become discouraged, that the long hours and difficult circumstances that they find themselves in would remind them to look to you for strength. And Lord, may they keep their work in proper perspective and be faithful to their families as they do that work. Lord, also protect their families from discouragement and fear, from the long days and nights. Lord, we pray that they would find comfort in knowing that you are always near. And Lord, we also pray this morning for the word. May it bring life, Lord, and quicken our hearts to repentance and leaning into you. Amen. Amen.
Thanks, Nick. You can have a seat and open your Bibles to Revelation 9. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the onslaught of information that surrounds you? For most of the history of mankind, part of our self-understanding was that we were finite and therefore very different from God, who is omniscient and all-knowing. So we would look to individual sources who would have a greater knowledge than ourselves, a greater connection to events that were happening, or a greater level of resources to even be able to afford the means of transmission. But as humanity has slowly but surely progressed in technological achievement, we have become more efficient at capturing vast amounts of information and data. Now, some estimates that I know of, and these are even dated estimates, state that more information or data has been produced in the last 30 years than in the previous 5,000. On the internet alone, more data is produced every two days than in all of history up to 2003. But this is a double-edged sword. On one side, you have an exponential increase in technological achievements because a vast network of experts in various fields can build off of the work of one another like never before. And this, for the most part, is a great achievement that we should express gratitude to God for in his common grace. But then on the flip side, the avenues by which this data is collected and distributed and consumed are used just as much, if not far more, as a means of deception. And all of this makes it more impossible than ever to be able to discern what is true and wise and helpful from what is false and foolish and deceitful. We live in a world that is overrun with information and opinions, relativism, and ultimately deception. We have bought into the lie that all sources of information deserve equal respect and should be listened to with equal authority. But friends, to do so is patently foolish. At the same time, as all this information of varying quality has become available at our fingertips, our wisdom and discernment as a society has not increased at the same pace. And we believe the false notion that we know everything because we have access to more data. But we have not admitted to ourselves that having access to data is not the same thing as being wise with its use. We have assumed the position of gods, thinking we know everything. But it has simply blinded us to the deception surrounding us. And because of this, the text that we are looking at this morning will provide us with a wake-up call that the enemy of Christ wants to overwhelm the world with a deception that leads to eternal death. John, the revelator, will picture this form of spiritual deception through a symbolic horde of demonic infantry that attacks God's people, similarly to how Assyria and Babylon attacked Israel and brought enslavement that led to death. And primarily, who they are attacking is the world of the rebellious many, not the remnant of the faithful holy few. This morning, we will see the sixth trumpet plague, a horde of demonic deception that brings forth death. That's the happy little title I've given today's sermon. A horde of demonic deception that brings forth death. 
Now here we will see four wicked angels who are so evil that God has constrained them for a specific time to be released so that they might wage war against the unrepentant. And the weapon of their warfare, as we will see, will be deception that flows from the symbolic mouths and tails of the war horses. We will see the demonic origin of deception, the destructive nature of deception, and the death that results from deception. And you might already be thinking, well, this is similar to last week. It is. These two plagues are eerily similar. And at the same time, as we have seen throughout the seals and the trumpets, John will also be encouraging those that are in Christ, hopefully us, that God protects his people in the midst of these spiritual plagues, and that if we simply endure amidst the chaos... We will rise in victory on the day of resurrection. And so we can hear God's word this morning as a caution to not be deceived, as well as an encouragement that if we stay firm in Christ and in his truth, we will be safe from spiritual deception. So let's begin by reading through our text and grappling with the heaviness that it brings us. Revelation 9, starting in verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths, and in their tails, for their tails were like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murderers or of their sorceries or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks be to God. In verses 13 through 15, right at the beginning, we see the demonic origin of deception. The demonic origin of deception. This is similar to last week, but at last week, as we looked at a bit of a deep dive on the biblical understanding of hell, we started to see a theme that will be used throughout Revelation, that the Lamb, in his sovereign position of power, allows but also limits destructive demonic activity on the earth. Remember that the major theme of Revelation is that the Lamb has conquered and is sovereign over all that is going on, even martyrdom of Christians, persecution, and chaos. Revelation is not about future events as much as it is about the adoration and exaltation of Jesus as the risen Christ and the confidence that his people can have as a result of his enthronement, even amongst chaos. 
And we are given another piece of symbolic evidence of this truth in the first verse here, verses here this morning. Our ears hear the voice of a being near the four horns of the golden altar before God. And this voice, most likely of the Lamb, or at least of one of his lieutenant angelic beings, speaks out of divine authority. Without this divine authority, this divine go-ahead, the plague that is described would not proceed forward. And remember what this altar symbolizes. We've seen it before, multiple times. In chapter 6, we were given the image of saints underneath the altar of incense, crying out for God's justice and retribution against wickedness and sin. Do you guys recall that? Yeah? Chapter 6? In chapter 8, we again saw this altar as the prayers of the saints were mixed with the incense and used to empower the plagues of God's wrath and judgment. Do you recall that? Yeah? A few head nods. And so here we are again, seeing the fuel to this judgment coming from God's just and compassionate nature for his own people. Out of his justice and holiness, he is enacting judgment upon the Christ-rejecting world. And even this, dear friends, is an act of compassion to draw men and women to repentance, because we also know what Revelation tells us about the end of the unrepentant. It is compassion to give judgment that draws people to repentance. From this voice comes a command to the angel holding the sixth trumpet to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now let's ponder for a moment this theme that is coming up more and more about the binding of these wicked angelic beings. We're going to see this even more, and it's going to become even more important in Revelation. Now we looked at this a bit last week as we discussed the abyss or the bottomless pit and what does this imagery of binding and incarceration mean? Well, to put it simply, it is a binding of their ability to deceive. A binding of their ability to deceive. Remember that Satan is termed the father or originator of lies. Do you guys recall this from John 8:44? Jesus says to those that are around him, "You are of your father the devil." And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That wasn't very kind of Jesus, was it? No, it was pointed and truthful. The bookends of Scripture reinforce this as Satan's primary character trait. Our first introduction to him is as a serpent that deceives Eve and then Adam in the garden. He deceives them by twisting and perverting Scripture and introducing doubt as to God's character. And then we will see him again on the back bookend, twice in chapter 20 of Revelation, seeing that he is the one who deceives the nations. He is the deceiver. That is his job. And his method of deception is to invent his own version of good and evil that is perverted or twisted from God's original truth. He will take God's truth and twist it just enough so that those who are not paying attention think it is the same truth. And he will encourage the worship of other beings and other things who, as we will see, have behind them a demonic origin. And so scripture tells us that at the fall, mankind handed the authority they had been given over creation to Satan. They followed his deception, 
rather than the solid word that had been given by God. And in doing so, they made themselves slaves to Satan's deception, rather than submitted servants to the Creator. And that is why Christ calls Satan, in the gospel according to John, the ruler of this world. God is still sovereign over his creation, but Satan has been allowed to be the ruler of those who accept his deception. He was allowed in his created free agency to choose to rebel against God and to deceive the nations. And the deception that he pushes is anything that displaces God as ultimate creator and lawgiver and anything that displaces Jesus as ultimate savior, king, and judge. Friends, you know you are dealing with a philosophy or ideology that is deceptive when there is any authority other than Christ and his word and when there is a way of salvation or redemption other than the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So when you see well-meaning politicians say, I have the answer, what do you know? It's deception. (laughs) But in spite of this deception, God, in his divine sovereignty and grace, chose to immediately give us a hope of salvation. That's what I love about the story of the fall is right when it happens, Jesus says, I have something that will redeem you. From the garden onward, there was the hope that one would come who, as God told Eve, would crush the head of this deceiver serpent and bring the light of truth to mankind. Are you happy about that? Amen. This light came in Jesus Christ and the truth of his gospel. For it is the gospel that awakens mankind and brings the light of God into our lives by the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, it hinders and hampers, it binds the deception of God's adversary. In effect, the deceiver and his deceptive followers are not destroyed, but they are bound, hindered in their ability to deceive because the gospel has burst forth in light to the nations. Amen? Now remember the story in the gospels, according the particularly the gospel according to Matthew, where Jesus healed a demon-possessed man that was blind and mute. Finally, this man could see the light, and he could proclaim what Christ had done for him. But the religious leaders, uh, they accused Jesus of operating in the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, another name for Satan. And look at what Jesus says there in Matthew 12, 25 through 29. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. You see, friends, at the cross, Jesus came to plunder the kingdom of the father of lies and ransom those who were his own. We were, in essence, possessed by Beelzebul. We were in his kingdom. 
And what Satan didn't want was for us to be ransomed out of that kingdom, but that is what Jesus accomplished. But first to do so, he needed to bind the strong man. He needed to bind Satan. And then Christ utilized those who had seen this light through the darkness of deception. He used the new covenant community of local churches springing up across creation to declare the truth even further so that during the church age in which we exist, Satan's deception would be greatly limited. As the gospel advances, deception is bound. As the gospel retreats, deception thrives. Now, this does not mean deception ceased completely at the cross, but you can imagine the world as a room that is pitch black due to the blackout curtains. And as those curtains are slowly drawn back as the gospel advances, the light breaks through the darkness and grows and grows. And this is the idea behind Jesus' statement in John 12, 31 through 32. Jesus says there, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Scripture shows that this binding or hindering of Satan's deception would continue throughout the church age until, as part of God's plan, he will give mankind over to that darkness of deception. The picture that Revelation and some of the other epistles give us is that as the church age comes to a close, directly before the return of Christ to resurrect and judge, these wicked agents of deception will be given greater freedom to deceive the nations. This is the story of God's word. And this is why, even though the gospel is active, you, de you see deception even in the early church and throughout the church age. Think with me back to Revelation chapter 2 that we covered a while back, and the deception that was active in almost all of the churches, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia. And this is also the promise of Paul to Timothy, that just as the gospel was binding the deception, deception would respond with a fight to try and deceive, if possible, even the elect. He notes that even in the present church age, then and now, people will try and build up teachers that will teach them what their ears want to hear. This is 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Friends, it breaks my heart how many times as a pastor I have heard people say in response to the blatant word of God, yeah, but I don't like what that says. And so they go find teachers who will teach them what their opinion dictates. That is deception. And worse still, it is voluntary. <laughs> it is wanting deception. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Not all who claim to follow Christ actually do. And not all messages spoken, supposedly with the Bible as their backing, are actually God's truth. The church is indeed, praise God, full of many faithful pastors and churches, but Satan has also infiltrated the larger church universal with many who are preying on the vulnerable and unsuspecting. Be aware, be prepared, and be ready to bring all things into submission to the word of God. 
Why is it that wolves like Joel Osteen can fill stadiums full of tens of thousands of people? Because who wouldn't want to sit for a 30-minute sermonette hearing how God doesn't intend you for coach, he wants you in first class? That meets every single selfish, fleshly desire that we have. But it is deception from the pit of hell. Well, now that we understand a bit more of the biblical theology behind Satan and his deceiving of the nations and the binding of his deception by the gospel, let's look back at Revelation 9 and we'll see it a bit more clearly. Again, it says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel with the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Last week, we saw the fifth trumpet portraying the deception of darkness that spreads throughout the unrepentant mankind during the church age. And it's for this reason that in the fifth seal, the people of God cry out, How long, O Lord? But now we are seeing a plague that is meant to be released at an exact time, directly prior to the coming of Christ. We have no idea how long it will last or when it will happen, but it will come. There will come, or perhaps now exists, we are not sure, a time when the activity of Satan increases. Chaos surrounds us, and deception reigns so that everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and good becomes evil, and evil becomes good. And you might rightly ask, are we there yet? (laughs) Well, we could be, most definitely. But remember, this is the same question that saints posed in the first century. We could be, right in that moment. Christ's return is imminent. But we could also be like the first century. It could, friends, amazingly, get far worse. And the question is, Are you ready to endure in the midst of that chaos and deception? Are you holding on dearly to Christ, to his spirit, to his word, and to his church so that you might not be deceived by the enemy of God, the ruler of this world? Well, these four angelic creatures are bound and then released in God's specific timing and his explicit sovereignty to carry out his divine judgment. Now, one other item to note here before we move on is that there could be a very strong connection here between these four angels and the image of the four winds of heaven that are held back in Revelation 7.1. Look there really quick with me, Revelation 7.1. It says there, after this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And we studied this when we went through chapter 7, that these winds were held back to not do harm or to judge the world so that the people of God could be sealed and protected. And this is imaging them being protected and sealed before deception and chaos erupt at the fall. And so it could be that these four winds in chapter 7 are basically the exact same thing as these four angels that are released in chapter 9. That's part of what we've been talking about in that corkscrew mentality where we hit the same thing from different views. Now, either way, the demonic origin of these angelic beings will mean that they came and that they come to bring deception that leads toward death. They symbolize the allowance of God bringing his wrath to bear on a Christ-rejecting world and giving them over further to their cherished, and I do mean cherished, deceptions. 
And so we next see the destructive nature of that deception in verses 16 through 19. Revelation 9, 16 through 19, let's read through it one more time. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now we are given a hint of this destructive nature in the geographic location of their origin in verse uh, 14 at the river Euphrates. These angelic beings are supposedly bound there. This does not mean that you should grab your scuba tank and go diving in Iraq to see if you can find demonic creatures down on the riverbed. Now think with me in biblical themes of what you can equate with the river Euphrates. First, we think of the fact that it was one of the rivers that ran through the Garden of Eden. It was a boundary marker. And this was the place where the origin of deception happened in the story of the fall. But then, even more prevalent throughout Scripture is that the area of the Euphrates was the location and direction from which the most destructive pagan armies came to bring judgment upon Israel for their idolatry. From these directions, the armies that were tools of God's judgment came to invade Israel. In chapter 16, we will see the same thing in a recapitulated manner when we see armies come from the east and who have demonic frogs that breathe forth deception. It's the same event, same idea, looked at in a different view. This idea of the east and the Euphrates are all meant to cause our minds to go back to the stories of the approaching hordes of Assyria and Babylon, Media and Persia. Now listen to the symbolism expressed in Jeremiah 46, 6 through 10, when God is describing the judgment he will bring upon Israel for their idolatry. It says this, The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put, who handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord, God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. In the days that John wrote Revelation, this idea of the advancing hordes of the east was also very prevalent. It would resonate with the first century readers or hearers of Revelation. You see, the eastern border of the Roman Empire in which Christianity, Christianity was flourishing was also the river Euphrates. To the east of it lay the Parthian Empire that was on the brink of attacking and conquering Rome. And so this imagery of attacking hordes coming from the east is very biblical and contemporarily relevant for the first century church. It's still relevant for us today. Look on enough crazy prophetic websites and you'll see that Russia attacking Ukraine could be the fulfillment of this. No, probably not. But the idea of the East 
And hordes coming from the east is absolutely an idea that still resonates with us. It's an idea of destruction. And so as our text continues through, John is again, as he did in the fifth plague, he's transitioning from one image to another to point, uh, or excuse me, to paint a picture with depth of the effects of God's judgment. We started in the first few verses with these angelic demonic beings, but seemingly that just stopped, and now we've morphed into this army as if led by or empowered by these four demonic beings. The wording that is used here of their number, twice 10,000 times 10,000, is to speak of the fact that it is a large army. It is the same Greek wording from chapter 5 when it described the angelic elders and angelic army before the throne. The words in the Greek are actually where we get the word myriad. This language is meant to elicit awe at the size of the host of the soldiers. And these soldiers are arrayed in battle apparel. And they're atop horses that are outfitted with the armor of war. They are pictured as an army chomping at the bit to fight. You can even see almost uh, the horse's nostrils breathing and them stomping at the ground ready to attack and charge. And they had breastplates with the color that symbolized the very thing that is emitted from their mouths. The red of fire, the blue or sapphire of smoke, and the yellow of sulfur. And this fire, smoke, and sulfur is meant to bring to mind the wrath of God. If we scan back quickly through Scripture to find this image of fire, smoke, and sulfur, one arrives quickly at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This from that story in Genesis 19, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. If you ever want to do a quick search, you can go find intense geological and archaeological evidence that this, in fact, happened. It is a proven fact that this happened. Go do your research today on Google and you will find this happened. Jude was perhaps drawing on the same imagery we see here as he speaks of incarcerated angelic beings who will ultimately suffer the wrath of God. This is from Jude. Uh, it's a single chapter, but verses 6 and 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains, there's that binding again, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You can see how Jude combined all the thoughts we're talking about right there. The binding of these demonic, deceptive enemies with the judgment of God's fire. All of these images mean to speak of the wrath of God being carried out. Fire, smoke, sulfur... Similar to the fifth trumpet is meant to elicit images of an origin of hell and the demonic. Their demonic nature is built up further when you imagine what these horses, quote unquote, look like. The horses have heads like lions, but then they also have long tails that are serpents that are able to sting like scorpions. Lions symbolizing their desire to devour weak prey. And serpents meant to symbolize the original deceiver. John combines these images, 
devouring lions who utter alluring and yet demonic poison from their mouths, and serpent-like tails who sting just like the locusts of the fifth trumpet. In this combination, John is picturing demonic activity through false prophecy and deception passed off as truth. Deception that will poison and suffocate and devour anyone that will listen as it comes from their demonic mouths. This is a deception that will lead to death if there is no repentance and no reliance upon the gospel. It is a nail in the coffin, if you will, of the unrighteous dead who refuse to submit to Christ and his word. And it says that by this deception, broken into a plague of three, in its fire, smoke, and sulfur, a third of mankind will die. This is a deception that leads to death. Friends, don't play around with deception. Don't play around with deception. It is measured because it is not the ultimate judgment that ends in the lake of fire, but it is a judgment that ends for many in their physical death, sealing their eternal fate in division from their creator. The imagery here draws our attention to the many wounded unbelievers around us. Just leave these doors and walk into the world and you will see the walking wounded. Those who have been injured and are in torment because of the deception into which they have given themselves, who will eventually be overtaken by death if the light of the gospel does not shine in their lives. It is meant to call us to compassion and see them for what their reality is, a reality of one trapped in a deception that needs to be freed with the key of the gospel. In my work as a counselor, I have seen people who are trapped in this kind of deception, and usually I find it in a place of spousal abuse, where there is Stockholm Syndrome, a syndrome where they basically have given themselves over so much so to their deceiver and their captor and their abuser that they are stuck in it, and their life is enveloped by it. It is the most heartbreaking thing to watch as they look with love upon their abuser. Friends, the world around us looks in love upon their abuser. They have cherished deceptions. Friends, do you see the non-believers around you with this compassion and this urgency to act? Or have you fallen for the lie that everyone has their own truth? Have you fallen for the lie that we shouldn't judge their reality. Friends, hear me. It is not love to leave them in their deception. It is only love of oneself and fear of the discomfort of offending them that keeps us from speaking the truth. But a godly compassion begins with a heart for them, just as the heart you would have towards one who is stuck in spousal abuse. You would never tell someone who's abused to snap out of it, figure it out, why can't you see the truth? You would lovingly, caringly speak the truth to them in ways in which they could hear it at every opportunity. It starts with a heart of compassion, and then it moves to prayer that God would open their eyes. And then it is a compassion that, if given even the slightest opportunity, it should cause us to plead with them to open the curtains that are eclipsing their heart and mind with deception 
and instead glimpse the light of life and truth that are contained in Christ and his gospel. Friends, please, don't get pulled into any other exercise of debate with non-believers. As Christians, we have one job. <laughs> you got one job. We have one message upon which we should spend any and all relational capital that we have built with non-believers. We preach the gospel, and we trust that God's light will shine in the lives of those that are his elect. Friends, if you think, no, but I have to tell them the truth about politics, or I have to tell them the truth about gender, or I have to tell them the truth about sexuality, preach the gospel effectively, and those will take care of themselves. You have been ordained and commissioned to be missionaries to the lost and dying world outside the walls of this building. Preach the gospel, friends, in action, in lifestyle, in relationships, and with your words. Let the truth that comes from your mouth destroy and conquer any of the poisonous deception that comes from the demonic mouths of the enemy. That is what you have been commissioned for. Amen? Now, before we leave this section, I think John may have been providing one more item for those of us who are in Christ, a statement of encouragement in the midst of all of this deception. Notice with me the odd statement in verse 19 that these horses have tails that are long and wide like serpents. Does that sound like a horse's tail? That's an odd description for something like a horse. Obviously, this is demonic in nature, and it is not speaking about tanks but it should cause us to look even further. And what we see if we do is that these tails are like serpents with heads. That's odd. Can you imagine describing someone as they're a human with a head? It's odd, right? It should cause us to look even further. And what do we see if we look at this idea that their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound? Well, we start to see that this is referencing something else in Scripture. All serpents have heads. But this serpent has a head and it wounds. And I wonder if this isn't meant to bring our minds back to that first mention of the gospel after the fall. You recall, don't you, what God said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word in Hebrew for bruise is shuf. It's rendered bruise in the English, and it's a word that's meant to overwhelm or to break. In other words, to crush. The serpent would overwhelm and crush the offspring of the woman, Eve, just as a viper's wound or bite at the heel would most likely end in death. But then that offspring would somehow, in being wounded, crush the head, the power, the authority of the serpent in that same moment. You see, dear friends, in that moment on the cross of Calvary, when Jesus was crucified and nailed to the cross on your behalf and mine, the adversary of God, Ha-Satan in the Hebrew, the ruler of this world, he incited a rebellious mankind to kill its creator and God. And in the physical sense, he seemed to have overwhelmed, to have wounded to death the seed of the woman. But then, three days later, that same Jesus resurrected from the grave, proving that he had, in fact, con conquered the deception of idolatry that had overtaken man. 
And in that resurrection, he proved once and for all that the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob was indeed the one true God, and that all other gods of this world are dead and demonic. And in doing so, he crushed the power and the authority of the slithering serpent of deception. He crushed the serpent's head. To those of us who have embraced this truth and submitted to its fullness, I wonder if John the Revelator isn't providing a reminder that our king has crushed the head of the lead serpent, and so we need not fear the deception that comes from these horses with tails like serpents with heads. Because of Jesus, the power of the deceptive horde of the kingdom of darkness has no power over those who are in Christ and who lean upon the redemptive truth of the gospel at all times. Glory be to God. At the same time, don't get lulled into a false sense of security that because you claim to follow Christ that you cannot be deceived. To claim the name of Christ is to be a person of his word. And it is only in submitting to yourself to his word and studying his word and leaning upon the historic declaration of his church as it stays true to the word that we will stand firm in truth and not be deceived. On your own power, dear friends, you can absolutely be deceived. Ask yourself, how much time do you spend in the Word compared to how much time you spend on your phone looking at every other source of deception? If one outweighs the other, If the word outweighs the other, you're in a good spot. If the sources of deception from your phone outweigh your time in the word, you're standing in arrogance, that you think that you cannot be deceived. Deception is only bound if you stand in God's word. This is a truth that we must grasp with passion because to be deceived And endure in that deception is to embrace spiritual death. Read the word, brothers and sisters, for in it are the words of life. If you don't stay true to Christ and his word, you will see the resulting death from deception. And that's the last section we'll cover this morning. The resulting death from deception. Verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. In the final section, we see that this judgment of deception that brings forth death does end in death for a measured few. God uses this as a sign and herald to those watching that are likewise unrepentant that they should indeed repent. But what is the response? Rather than giving up their idolatry and turning to worship the true and living God, they embrace idolatry further. Again, this is the nail in the coffin of a rebellious humanity. As I have said already in Revelation, we often think we are beyond idolatry because we do not worship in the same cultic pagan fashion as our ancestors. But the idols we worship are still very much prevalent in our lives. Remember that idolatry is simply the worship of something other than the one true God. And this could be the worship of self, the worship of popularity, the worship of success, 
security, comfort, greed, sexuality, intimacy, the worship of friendship, the worship of an authority figure, the worship of politics, the worship of a pastor or a church or of your spouse or of your children, the worship of the role you hold as a mother or father, the worship of work or sports or hobbies. I could go on and on and on. We know that we worship something other than God because we see it in how we spend our time, our talents and our treasure. Our energy is devoted to our false gods that we wrongly think will bring us salvation. Our emotions are devoted to our gods. We look to our gods to tell us truth from deception. We look to our gods to set morality and inform us as to what righteousness and unrighteousness is in their eyes. And this is why we fight so hard at this church. Yeah, I said it. Laugh it up. Note to self, don't put fight and hard in the same sentence. This is why we fight so hard at this church, against any ideology or philosophy or worldview that has its own sense of morality, its own priests, its own acts of worship. The gospel breaks through this deception, and with great clarity... It points out to you and to me that we are sinners who have long existed in idolatry and forsaken the worship of the one we were created to worship. The only one we were created to worship is the one true and living God. The gospel requires us to see all the selfishness and sin that exists within us and within creation. And friends, it requires of us a response. Will we continue to walk in blindness, or will we open our eyes and turn to the truth we know exists in God's Word? When we worship something other than God, we become like what we worship. Our earlier reading from Psalm 115 says this, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Those who honor and worship Yahweh will be drawn to him. Those who honor and worship Christ will be made into his image. But those who worship idols will become unable to hear, unable to see, unable to think for themselves. They will be deceived. They will become mute in speaking the truth, in proclaiming the gospel. And yet John points out in Revelation, even though they cannot see or hear or walk, those in rebellion still want to follow them and worship them, even though they are powerless because it sets the worshiper up as the God. And even more upsetting is the fact that behind these idols is the empowerment of demons. Paul implied the same truth in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, when he says that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And he says, don't be participants with demons. Worship of anyone or anything other than Christ is at its core, dear friends, demon worship. You worship Christ or you worship demons. 
There is no in-between. And so, even though mankind has been presented time and time again with the judgment of God through the chaos and deception around them, even though their idolatry has proven useless and destructive, and even though they have witnessed the hardness of their own hearts at times, even with all this, they are cementing their own fate and destruction of an eternal death, cast into the lake of fire and divided from their creator, separated from his love and life and light. To not acknowledge the deception of the demonic entity, to not fight against it daily, is to give into it, and slowly but surely to be overcome by it, and eventually bring death and holy wrath upon yourself. Now, you might be saying, as you look at this list here in verses 20 and 21, well, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not idolatrous. I'm glad I haven't murdered or stolen, and I'm not into witchcraft, and I'm faithful to my spouse, so. But friends, according to Christ in his Sermon on the Mount, the heart behind these is hatred, distrust of God, a need for control, lust, and objectification of others for our own sexual ends, and greed. To give in to any of these heart-based sins is to be deceived by our idolatry, and every one of us in this room is guilty. When we recognize that these and the overall sin of idolatry is what John is speaking of, we are humbled and reminded that but by the grace of God go any of us into the deceptive destruction of these sins. All of us are in need of Jesus Christ to speak the truth into our lives so that he can crush the head of the serpent that desires to deceive us. Every one of us is in need of the lion of the tribe of Judah to conquer the demonic lions that are pictured as breathing deception upon a rebellious humanity. Friends, the picture here is of a horde of demonic deception that brings forth death. And we must recognize that we cannot defeat them in our own power. Their deception is often sweet to our sinful ears. They appear to us as an angel of light oftentimes. But if we lean into Christ and his word moment by moment, day by day, we will reap the strength of the conquering cross of Christ that has already been accomplished. The demonic force pictured here is for a set day and time, but don't be deceived. Satan, the deceiver, is constantly on the move. and He never rests. If anything, he may pull back for a time and regroup, but be ready because another wave of his deception and tyranny will come. Friends, one of the blessings of being a pastor in this church and interacting with many of you on a weekly basis is that I get to see Satan's devices probably clearer than any of you, and he is afoot in many of our lives right now. This week, so many good brothers and sisters in this church brought to me an absolute plea for prayer to not be overwhelmed by his work and deception. Friends, he hates this church, and that is a blessed thing. He hates you, praise God. And he's attacking you because he knows that this church has within it the power to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying Salem and Willamette Valley. Don't ever, ever take his attacks as something that you should be ashamed of. Realize that in it, the Lord wants to empower you and give you strength to come out of it stronger and more powerful than ever before because in our weakness, 
we lean upon him. Friends, that is the word for you this week. Stand up from the mat, even though you've gotten punched, and be stronger in Christ. Lean on Christ all the more, and go proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. We must use every Sunday of communal worship, every morning of prayer and devotion, to ready ourselves for this battle and the battle that that day contains. Friends, lean into Christ. Allow him to be your protector and his truth to be your rear guard. For a reliance upon him has assured us that we will not be deceived unto death, but we will instead be set free in the truth so that we might look forward to the day of ultimate salvation at the resurrection of his saints. Praise God for his salvation that has drawn our hearts to him in repentance and that he has given us truth to defeat deception. Can I get an amen? This is the truth that his word has for us this morning.